Well, good morning, Westridge. Happy Time Change Sunday. Is your stomach telling you it's lunchtime? You know, this is also a big day because uh, Nick Walinda is stretching a tightrope from Marina City to the uh, Leo Burnett building across Wacker. Do we know this? And then he's stretching one between the two towers, and he's going to walk across that, that one blindfolded. I was thinking about that. I was just wondering, I wonder if we could get Jay Cutler on one of those stretches to walk behind him. You're bitter, aren't you? I can tell. Yeah. I think uh, at its most basic, God wants the same thing from all of us. It's what I wanted from our two daughters, and that is grow up and pay your own way. You can tell by my comment earlier, I've still got a lot of growing up to do. Uh, you can call it spiritual maturity, you can call it spiritual formation, but that's basically the journey we're on, the journey that God wants us to be on. And it doesn't matter so much where we started as it does the direction in which we're heading to be more like Jesus. That's, that's the maturity that God wants from every single one of us. I was thinking about that, and I think at its, at its simplest, maturity is about changing perceptions looking at the same thing and seeing it differently is in many cases a mark of maturity. Looking back and saying, what was I thinking? You have any of those memories in your life where you look back at a different period of uh, time in your life and you go, what was I thinking when I did that? That's a mark of maturity, looking at the same thing and seeing it differently. A small child can look at two automobiles and just see a ride to grandma's. A teenager could look at those same two automobiles and be able to tell the difference between a Pontiac and a Ferrari. That's maturity. The way we view our parents change. The way I look at my 90-year-old father today and when I call him every single day to talk to him, it's, it's a very different view than I had of him as a teen. And hopefully, our children's view of us change over time as well. Our oldest daughter is a high school English teacher. And her view of teenagers today is very different than when she was one. <laughs> and so gratifying for her to say to us, you know, I am so glad you paid attention to my grades and you motivated me to do a little bit better because most parents today don't do that. That wasn't her line 15 years ago. <laughs> Over time as we mature, we can come to view almost everything differently. So take fashion, for example. What was I thinking when I bought that yellow leisure suit? <laughs> Material possessions. I mean, why did I have to have that 1974 Chevy Vega in canary yellow to match the leisure suit? <laughs> the same holds true for our perception of God. To a large extent, the way we view God determines how we respond to life. So I want to take one of the more famous stories that Jesus ever told and try to see a more mature view of God and at the same time get a better view of our own true home. So here we go in reverse order. A study of three characters, the way in which they relate to each other, their perception of God, and ultimately the question, where are we in the story? Character number one known as the elder brother. He's bitter because he's got a scarcity mentality. 
He was ruled by ingratitude. Famous quote goes like this. All these years I've been slaving for you. Never disobeyed your orders. And yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Now the backdrop for this character is a party. There's music, there's laughter, there's dancing, but this character, the elder brother character, he's standing on the outside looking in at the party. He's pouting. And you know it's not just little kids that pout from time to time. Let's keep it real. He's defiantly refusing to attend. Because to do so would be to endorse the reason for the party. And the reason for the party was to celebrate a person that he didn't think was worthy who came home. The party serves to highlight what has been true for way too long. The older brother doesn't share his father's values. And because the father is sponsoring the party, this elder brother thinks he's spending way too much on it. Too much money, too lavish with his acceptance, too much merriment, too much compassion. And you realize there are actually people who don't like seeing others have a good time? Do we know some of those people? Raise your hand if you're one of those people, okay? Uh, Yours is the spiritual gift of wet blanket throwing. And so the party serves to highlight the fact that the elder brother has a scarcity mentality and the emotion that rules his life is ingratitude. And the tagline for his existence is, there's not enough. There's not enough grace, not enough mercy, not enough money, not enough joy, not enough love, not enough forgiveness to go around. There's not enough. Therefore, what little we have should only be spent on those who deserve it. And who better than me to determine who deserves it? It's called the elder brother syndrome. E-B-S. And it's a recognized malady in churches to this day. The The unspoken inference is that we're morally and spiritually superior. After all, we're the homebodies. We never left home in the first place. And the first church of the elder brother syndrome becomes a morally superior place to sit in judgment on all those in a distant land. Instead of joining the party, EBS people, they're on the outside and they're hoarding. Why are they hoarding? Because there isn't enough. enough, enough. What time is it? Enough. There's not a little bit of encouragement really goes a long way with me. (laughs) Not enough grace, not enough mercy to go around. Over-controlling, dominant, arrogant, most of all, bitter. The home of scarce resources, do I have to tell you, where bitter homebodies resides, not a very happy place. Conflict occurs repeatedly. Creativity is stifled. Life is at best boring. And the elder brother lives on today in the church through hard-working but bitter 
people hoarding all they can in their scarcity mentality. And so, maturity is what? Changing perceptions, looking at one thing, seeing it differently. Has to do with giving up preconceptions that we've held on to too tightly. Some of those tapes that we were taught in childhood or during our formative years that just aren't so. Looking at the same thing, seeing it differently. The elder brother needed to change his scarcity mentality to an abundance mentality. And that's something he's not going to do. So, he'll just sit and stew in his bitterness with his ingratitude. Character number two. Character number two is the loving father. He's bigger than the bitterness and the betrayal of his sons. Famous quotes. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and kissed him. And then to the elder brother he says, My son, you're always with me. And watch this. Everything I have is yours. Here's the values of the loving father that the elder brother rejected. Love, acceptance, forgiveness, and don't miss this one, generosity. The judgmental elder brother, he's just the opposite. He's resentful, unforgiving, and miserly. Sounds like a great life, doesn't it? And ultimately, he's the one consumed with material possessions. More often than not, those who complain about extravagance are the ones consumed with greed. Think Judas Iscariot. Those who hold on with tight-fisted tenacity to past grudges usually do the same thing with their money. And so mark this well, unforgiving people are rarely financially generous people. However, as we'll later uh, learn, the loving father, he's got two sons, and on the second younger son, he extends lavish forgiveness. Mercy and financial generosity. No scarcity mentality here. The loving father has an abundance mentality. And the story shows us that he's waiting and he's watching for his second son to come home. The story tells us that the loving father runs to put his arms around him. Tom Wright calls this the parable of the running father. Because for older people to run in Eastern culture was to be shameful. But he didn't care. He saw a different son coming home than the one that had left. Among other things, the loving Father teaches me the only time I'm to gather my righteous robes around me is when I'm running to greet someone who comes to his senses and returns home. You'll not exhaust the forgiveness, the mercy, the patience, the generosity of the loving Father to see you return and welcome you with a homecoming party. Character number three. He's known as the prodigal son. The backdrop for this character is a dusty road home. The younger son, he was better because he came to his senses. The Bible says, when he came to his senses, here's what he says. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. And so he got up and he went to his father. The word prodigal is not spoken by Jesus. It means liberal, specifically wasteful or lavish. It came to mean wayward. 
And most of the teaching that I received as a young person about this parable focused on the younger son and how we needed to avoid wild living because that would cause us to end up in a pig pen just like him. And God knows, at that time in my life, I needed that message. But the end of the story doesn't justify that emphasis about this parable. It's true, a a wayward person coming home is significant, but the ironic, bittersweet ending is that the father realizes that the real prodigal is the older brother, not the younger brother. So let's end the parable on good news. The so-called prodigal returns to his father after wasting his inheritance on riotous, fast-lane living. And at the beginning of our picture of him, we see a self-absorbed consumer. We don't know any self-absorbed consumers today, do we? His only response to his father's hard-working lifestyle is, Give me. Give me what belongs to me. Give me my inheritance. Give me my rights. I want it, and I want it now. Come on. Give it to me. It's mine. I want what's mine. That's the before character. Eventually, after being reduced to feeding pigs for a living, he's graced with this agonizing but ultimately liberating moment of awareness. The Bible says that he comes to himself. In the original language, it's a term that describes someone who comes out of a coma. What was this new awareness that he had? What was this new step of maturity that he'd achieved? The awareness was that living real life comes from what I give back, not what I receive. The younger son returns home to find his long-suffering father waiting for him with open arms. And what's the son's cry now? He left saying, give me. He comes back and he says, make me like one of your servants. Make me like one of your servants. That's the after character. That's the step of maturity. Same father, he looked really different now. The difference between living and just existing is found in the difference between the phrases give me and make me. Leaving home, leaving the familiar can be painful, can be traumatic, risky. The road to maturity snakes through a strange land in the forest of our nightmares and eventually brings us back home. The younger son leaves with one snapshot of his father and he comes back with an entirely different picture. In the process, he's matured. He's grown up. He's more fulfilled. Now the story appears to have three different characters, but really, it's only got two. Because both brothers were self-absorbed, arrogant, greedy. They just expressed it differently. One left the farm, partied, came home. The other stayed home, lived his life a slow burn. There can be no homecoming without leaving home, and so he's unable to party even in his own house. I get to travel around visiting a lot of different churches around the country. It's a fascinating experience, but i got to tell you the truth. I still see a lot of elder brothers. A lot of arrogant homebodies standing outside the party, ready to induce guilt and shame on a moment's notice. 
living downtown, I see a lot of younger brothers. They're living life in a distant land, sometimes reckless, sometimes self-destructive. And everywhere I look, I see too few who have really come home. And in the middle of it all, I see a loving, forgiving God, lavish with His gifts and His grace to us. What's often overlooked in this parable is the central topic of financial generosity. The younger brother, he wanted to take the money and run. The older brother, he wanted to stay home and make all the money decisions. God's given us all financial resources. The parable is about viewing them differently as we mature. It's about viewing our financial resources not as ours, but as His, entrusted to us for just a time to use wisely in a way that brings fulfillment to us and does good for worthy causes, like, for example, Westridge Church. All you think you own, you owe. Tell yourself, I have a God of abundance and acceptance. I have a God whose generosity is lavish. There's a lot of voices talking to you about when and where to be generous. Media outlets, bloggers, con artists. Create some space in your journey toward maturity to hear what God has to say to you about generosity. Because I don't know, I don't know if you're running from home. I don't know if you're running back home. I don't know if you're sitting out the celebration entirely. I'm not sure where you're at in this story. Whether you need to turn around, whether you need to speed up, whether you need to let it go, or whether you just plain need to grow up a little. But here's what I know. This is the gospel truth. God's love is big enough to accept you whatever you've done and wherever you've been. And His love is strong enough to bring you back home right where you've been.